if you turn your attention to the screens and read our scripture with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, uh, since COVID started, the word normal has been thrown around. When are we going to get back to normal? And, and here's the answer, I don't know, but coffee's back, Amen. So we got coffee in church today, so you guys will have to find something else to complain about. Um, You may even have to show up early for church so you can get coffee. Uh, Third service, it is always 10.59, and there's four of you in here, and then all of a sudden we get on stage and it's a full crowd. So glad to have you in church today. This morning we're talking about grace. Um, As uh, Ian mentioned, we've kind of done some shuffling Um, in order to uh, stick with our Romans text. We've been reading through Romans in in this series. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 6 today. I would invite you to open up your Bible, or if you are a mobile Bible user, uh, you can find our digital bulletin on YouVersion. Uh, If you click on the events, uh, you can find Community Christian Fort Scott. And all of our text and and some of the key uh, notes for this morning will be in there. Um, This morning, here's what I came to tell you, that grace, grace has really only gotten to you once it has gone through you. Grace has really only gotten to you once it has gone through you. And so I think in order to uh, help us understand grace this morning and what it looks like for us not only to receive it but to extend it, I'd like to spend our time counteracting six different mindsets that we might have about grace. We read from Ephesians 2.8 that God's grace was granted to us when we believed It is a gift from God. It is not accomplished through works. It's from Ephesians 2.8. So the first thing we need to understand this morning is that grace is accepted, not earned. Grace is accepted, not earned. I want you to think about what what are some of the best gifts you've ever been given? Were they wrapped up and put under a tree? Did they show up in your driveway one morning? Was it someone extending radical hospitality to you when you were overwhelmed with, with gratitude? I know sometimes when we're asked to think of the best thing ever, we have a hard time thinking of that one thing. But I'd venture to guess, if you're anything like me, that the best gifts you have been given are actually non-material. They're intangible, not something that you could just go out and buy yourself. While we were living in Dallas, Bailey and I had some good friends named Josh and Cassie, and we had lived in Dallas for a couple of years in a small one-bedroom apartment, and it was at the point, we were like, hey, we, we want to buy a house, but we knew we couldn't afford it. In fact, the cost of our one-bedroom apartment in Dallas was significantly more than the mortgage we have on a home here. It's crazy expensive. I don't know if you know, Dallas and Fort Scott are a little bit different uh, in a few different ways. But we lived in, in this apartment for some time. We wanted to buy a house, and we couldn't quite afford it. And so we had these really good, close friends to us who extended an invitation to come and live in their home. And we got to live in their home uh, for several months and save up some money to be able to buy a house. And that was an incredible gift to us. It wasn't something we earned. It was just something freely given, something that we could only accept. The same is true for God's grace for us. It's something we accept, not something we earn. However, we struggle to see it this way. In, in the biblical text, the Greek word for grace is charis. And it is the term uh, most used to describe God's kindness towards us in His extension of salvation. It is unearned, unmerited favor. Grace is not something that we grasp. Grace is something that grasps us. We respond in gratitude when we have genuinely experienced grace. 
The moment that something can be bought is the moment that it ceases to be available to everyone. God's grace is His own free gift. It's His idea, His creation. God extends grace. It's who He is. This, morning, or this week in our preparation for our service today, uh, the team shared with me uh, a cool illustration about Cinderella's castle at the Magic Kingdom in Disney World. Now, I'm extremely well-versed in Cinderella, having watched it 79 times in the last two months uh, with a two-year-old daughter. But I didn't know this about uh, Cinderella's castle. Every morning, a Disney computer randomly selects a lucky winner. It could be the person passing through the seventh turnstile uh, at the East Gate leading into Epcot at 11.51 a.m. The location could be anywhere on the Walt Disney World property, and the time is generally uh, before noon. They select a lucky winner to give them a VIP treatment for the whole day. The first thing they're excited to do is to pack an overnight bag because they get to stay in Cinderella's suite on the fourth floor of the castle. Once back at the Magic Kingdom, they have a royal photo session. They're escorted ceremoniously down Main Street. There's all kinds of VIP perks and pampering that take place. Later that night, they're treated to a dinner at Cinderella's royal table, including an audience with Cinderella herself. Then after dinner, the winner enjoys a VIP viewing of the Magic Parade and the Wishes fireworks show that take place. And after the Magic Kingdom closes, after all other guests are asked to leave, that lucky winner and his or her family get to have two hours free reign in the park by themselves. Upon returning to the castle suite, they're handed the keys to the kingdom, and they will find this room transformed into this royal suite with turndown services, all sorts of amenities, various things that are for royalty alone. And here's the incredible thing, that this is all totally free. People have offered hundreds of thousands of dollars to stay one night there. Various recording artists and celebrities have offered to trade something in return to have a stay in the royal suite, and Disney has repeatedly said, no, it's free. It cannot be bought. The moment something can be bought is the moment it ceases to become available to everyone, and most of the guests who attend Disney World would never be able to afford it. God's grace is accepted. It's not earned. The second mindset we need to counteract about grace is this, that grace is liberty, but it's not license. Grace is liberty, not license. I told you we'd be in Romans chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. Verses 1 through 4 of Romans 6 say this. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of His wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined Him in His death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. See, one of the ideas that we need to confront about grace is the abuse of it. Grace does not exist so that we never find consequence for our failure, but so that we can live free forever from the control of sin. Paul pleads with us in Romans 6 that we would not subject ourselves any longer to the life that sin entices us to live, but that we would cling to Christ in the vibrant, fulfilling life that He has died to provide for us. I love how Eugene Peterson writes those same two verses, Romans 6, 1 and 2, in the message translation. He says this, so what do we do? Keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? 
the essential belief of Christians is that we accept God's grace through faith. We are acknowledging our sin, accepting the atoning work of Christ on our behalf. We are affirming our allegiance to Him and Him alone and therefore aligning our lives with His. It's why we get in the waters of baptism because we participate first in His death and then we share in His resurrected life. And friends, sin is a sickness. It is a sickness that devastates everything it touches. It is never under control. It is never harmless. It is never isolated. It is never something you or I could just deal with. Yet we so quickly invite it back into our lives. In one of the commentaries I was reading this week, Stephen Rung writes this, After learning all the devastating consequences of sin and the prospects of abounding grace, you'd think people would turn their backs on sin forever. Paul instructs us here to guard against the idea that because grace is always available and always free, and it is, that somehow we don't need to address our sin or worry about our standing with Jesus. It's such a slippery slope that because grace is always available, we never need to confess, repent, or practice righteousness. It's a slippery slope. It's the same logic that we use when it's and this is just a hypothetical, 9.47 p.m., you're sitting on the couch watching the World Series on a Saturday night, and you think, I'm going to have that second brownie. I'm going to have that fifth brownie because I'm going to go on a run in the morning, right? That's supposed to counteract it. I'm going on a run, therefore I can eat all the sugar that I want. Christ died to save us from the very thing that we continue to engage in. What a slap in the face. Paul says that when grace has truly found us, we eagerly join Jesus in his death. When something is alive, it has the power and the ability to do whatever it was created to do. But when something is dead, it loses any power or capability. It is impossible for a dead thing to do anything but be dead. I came across a, a story of sorts on Twitter uh, this last week where a young man had texted out, a family uh, group thread conversation. And this is a father texting his two adult children about a family tragedy. Here's what he says. I've got some bad news. Kitty has been missing since last night. When your mom drove the neighborhood just now, she found her in the street near the house. Your mom is pretty emotional, so please reach out when you can and offer support. Now, I know half of us in the room are thinking, no big deal, dead cat, praise God. Here's what the son says, oh no, I'm so sorry to hear this. And the sister said, man, I I just got off the phone with her. She's definitely very broken up about it. Give her our love in person when you get home, dad, and be sure to get this woman her groceries. Love you guys. I don't know what the context is. Apparently dad's been skimping on his job to pick up groceries. Here's how the father responds a few hours later. Well, You're not going to believe this. After a beautiful burial service and words of remembrance from yours truly, we walked back in the house to begin our post-kitty life. Out of habit, I looked out the back window, and guess who was staring back at me? You guessed it. We buried someone else's cat. (laughs) I guess it's true. Cats do have nine lives. Thanks for your kind words. All is better now. Sister says, is this for real? And the dad happily responds, I can send a photo, and he sends that picture. And then, because there's timestamps here, I can see that the very next day, he sends another text to his two adult children around noon. He says, oh, by the way, I dug up the carcass and took it to our vet, because someone else's cat, they'd probably want to know, and it didn't have a chip in it, because it's a rabbit. (laughs) Do not tell the world about this. Listen, uh, dead things don't do things. 
Dead things don't do things. If we have died to sin, we no longer have any place in and with it. Try to go to a cemetery and recruit a team for your softball league this spring. You'll be showing up for the first game all by yourself. Dead things don't do things. This is what we are saying when we join with Jesus. We are dead to sin. Grace is not licensed to throw caution to the wind and unite with sin. It is liberty to live in harmony with Jesus forever. We shouldn't see grace as a license to live in the thing that Jesus died to save us from. Grace is accepted. It's not earned. Grace is liberty, but it's not license. Grace should elicit excitement, but not entitlement. God's grace should ignite within us a desire to do what He desires for us to do. And seeing God's grace as a gift should elicit that excitement. We are not entitled to it. It is a gift freely given. In Romans 6, 5-11, Paul continues this way, Since we have been united with Him in His death, we will also be raised to life as He was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with Him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and He will never die again. Death no longer has any power over Him. And when He died, He died once to break the power of sin. But now that He lives, He lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. We are under grace not the law. We are invited to live forever with Jesus. Remember our text last week, though, says that all have fallen short of God's glorious standard. No one is entitled to the grace that God gives. He gives it freely because that is who He is. Grace is sometimes hard to grasp because we believe that we've earned it. We live good lives and therefore feel entitled to the very thing Paul says none of us are worthy of. And and here's our issue. If we believe we've earned it, we'll hardly appreciate it. I deserve this, I've earned this, I own this. These lines of thinking, they they have no place in the lives of the redeemed people of Jesus. We are never excited about what we feel entitled to. Resurrected life doesn't have the same compelling pull if we think we were headed there anyway based on our good works. And surely you've heard the phrase, born on third base thinking you hit a triple. We do this in our right standing with God. God has placed us in this place of undeserved privilege, and yet we think somehow we've done something to be worthy of it. None of us has ever done enough. We're all in a privileged place because of God's grace. No one has earned or achieved enough, and and friends, it's actually not even close. But this leads us into this line of thinking, that, that God's grace is a gift, but God's grace does not fill the gap. God's grace does not fill the gap. Here's what I want to say about that. The fourth thing we need to understand is that grace comes out of mercy, not merit. Romans 3.24, part of our text from last week, remember, says we're justified freely by God's grace. Paul continues in Ephesians 2.9, after 2.8 that we read this morning, that it is not a result of work so that no one can boast. And maybe you've heard the definition of grace before by contrasting it with this idea of mercy. That mercy is not receiving something that I deserve. But grace is receiving something that I don't deserve. Mercy is not grace. But grace certainly includes mercy. 
In Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, Paul continues this way, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Friends, the the text all over the Bible, all over the New Testament especially, is clear that our destiny was damnation. Our sin splitting the ground that was intended to be shared between God and us. And sin is serious. Sin separates, sin causes suffering, sin alienates and isolates, it always leads to shame and puts us in a state of self-condemnation. Sin always takes us farther than we wanted to go and keeps us there way longer than we intended to stay. Sin took us to a place that we knew we were wretched. At the very end of our text this morning, and the verse that Ian shared in our communion meditation was Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. Paul wants us to understand the ground on which we stood. As slaves to sin, we were obedient to its beck and call. Once you become a slave to someone, they dictate your existence. The activity of sin always leads to pain and death. However, I think for many of us, the issue is this, that we don't really consider ourselves to be sinners. Our scales are skewed because we don't see our sin clearly, and therefore we do not understand our slavery to it. Our subliminal sin has trapped us inside of it, but it leads us to the same place that we would all consider more overt sins to do. Because at the root of all sin is pride. We're all proud one way or another. This pride quickly works its way into our lives, all facets of it. Believing that we are better than someone else is a dangerous way to live. And pride promotes sinful behavior towards others. Here are some of those subliminal sins those lines of thinking that I think are actually extremely sinful. It's, number one, the condescension towards others who are different than us. I'm better than that person. It's our arrogance and our belief that we deserve a more privileged spot. It's the the gossip that deteriorates the communal fabric that should bind the people of God together. It's making our preferences priorities and therefore failing in our kingdom mandate to share Jesus with the world. It's our greed that hinders our families and our church because we're not giving joyfully. It's the dishonesty in your home, in your workplace, or in your social setting. It's valuing pleasure over purpose. It's valuing comfort over conviction. You might say, yeah, but Joel, these are, these are like minor league sins, and there are, are major league sins that are way worse than this. And Paul actually addresses this kind of thinking at the very beginning of his letter In Romans chapter 1, in verse 29, he says this, Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises. They're heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, and yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. And we're like, yeah, whoa, Paul, those, those people are bad. They deserve God's wrath and judgment and punishment. And then Paul starts chapter 2, and you know what he says? You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. And you have no excuse. 
So aren't you glad you came to church this morning to hear a hope-filled message? The point is this. We all deserve the wage of death. Our master was sin, but God in His mercy chooses to purchase us out of that debt. Here's the struggle, and, and friends, I'm in this group too. So many of us are, don't see ourselves as being that bad. In fact, we might believe that we've done enough good to outweigh the little bit of bad that has existed in our lives. So certainly we'll, God will save us based on our merit, but, but church, listen to this. Christianity is not Boy Scouts. No amount of things you accomplish or badges you receive can place you in a position for God to have no choice but to affirm you. See, grace does not fill the gap because the gap is a myth. There's some of us who might think, and I've been here too, that I've made it so close and I just need a little bit of grace to get me past that point. But grace actually instructs us that, that there is no gap in the first place. God, grace doesn't make up for the gap. Grace takes us all the way from sinner to saint. It is only because of God's mercy, not our merit, that we are receiving not receiving the wage of death that we deserve. God's grace is mercy, not merit. God's grace also is His favor, not our fervor. Grace is so much more than just mercy. Grace is not only not receiving what we do deserve, but receiving something that we don't deserve. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is undeserved privilege. And Paul writes in Romans 6.18, Having been set free from sin, we are now slaves to righteousness. And some of us might push back on that notion, why would I want to be a slave to anything? But being a slave to righteousness is not this suppressive, demeaning, abusive relationship as most of us would think when we hear a word like slavery. No, actually this, this Greek word doulos, meaning servant, it, the other definition is to bind to. It is a binding to Jesus himself. Because of Jesus, you cannot escape his righteousness. You are bound to it as a slave is to his master. Once grace has gotten to you and works its way through you, righteousness is who you are and it's what you do. This is all part of God's gift of grace. See, our escape from sin cannot be achieved through our, merit, through our meritorious behavior and neither can the favor of God be achieved through our fervor. No matter how worthy we try to make ourselves, God's invitation into his righteousness is still a gift of grace. I mean, I can just tell you, I, I got a whole back row of family in the room. They'll attest to this too. For most of my life, I've carried a big head around on my shoulders. And I might see a sinner and think, oh man, they need God. And when I look at myself, I think, oh man, God needs me. But grace hasn't made its way all the way through us until we realize our fervor for the Lord isn't what warrants the reward of His favor. It is our response to His favor freely given. There's actually a category for this line of thinking. It's grown popular in, in post-modernity. It's, it's called moralistic therapeutic deism. And it is this assertion that through our moralistic or good behavior, we feel better about ourselves, therapeutic, and therefore maintain that God is pleased with us. So we go to church and we serve meals and we listen to our Christian radio and so on and so forth because it makes us feel better about ourselves, not because we've actually grown intimately, deeply in love with the God who created us and redeemed us. I was listening to a sermon this last week, and the preacher shared a quote from C.S. Lewis. Maybe you've heard of that guy before. He says this, that as he was considering his own sin, he realized, I was asking God to excuse my sin rather than forgive my sin. 
But listen, we need to, to break free from that line of thinking. Because God's grace really hasn't gotten to you unless it's worked its way all the way through you. And in order to go through you, it has to dismantle the notion that we've done anything to merit God's mercy or lived in such fervor that we've earned His favor. No, God has looked into the depths of your heart. He's seen the wickedness. He's seen the envy, the lust, the greed, the pride. He's seen the porn addiction and the shopping addiction. He sees the deceit that exists between you and your spouse and the gossip that you continue to circulate. He sees every word you've said behind your boss's back. He sees the way you treat your children. He sees how you spend your time and money in ways that do not honor him or his kingdom. And you know what he says? He says, I want you. But God, what, what in me is there to want and he just responds with, I want you. On our best day, we deserve hell. But even on our worst day, God gives us heaven. God's grace is unmerited favor. Nothing to earn, nothing to prove, nothing to gain, nothing to lose. All of God's saving work comes because of his grace. Final mindset that we need to dismantle is this, that grace is, because, is a privilege. It does not come because of some platform we've constructed for ourselves. God's grace getting all the way through us looks like dismantling this platform that we've put ourselves on to promote our worthiness to God and to prove our worthiness to other people. We stand in privilege because of God's grace. So we can stop jockeying for position and playing this game of comparison. See, a lot of times we make our Christianity horizontal instead of vertical in this way. We look around the room and we say, I'm better than that person. I'm better than that person. I haven't sinned like that person. I didn't miss small group like that person. And so therefore, God must be more pleased with me. And if God has to take somebody to heaven, at least I'm better than these other people. But I call this slow kid theology. Here's what I mean. If you're walking in the woods and you see a bear, do you have to outrun the bear? No, you just have to outrun that slow kid in your group. Friends, this is not what the Bible teaches, but it is often what we practice. God's grace is a privilege. It doesn't come because we've constructed some platform that proves we're worthy. We don't have to play pretend anymore. Grace frees us from the fear of being seen through because its implication is that imperfection is at all of our core. So we don't have to pretend to have it all together all the time. The platform that we've built to promote our worthiness to God and to prove it to other people can come down. We can stop trying and start trusting. So friends, grace has really only gotten to you when it has worked its way all the way through you. Grace, when fully realized, sees that it is accepted and not earned. That it is liberty and not license. It is excitement, not entitlement. It is mercy, not merit. It is favor, not fervor. And it is a privilege, not a platform. When grace has truly gotten to us, it's going through us. We're not just receivers of grace. We are extenders of it. And in, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells this story. He tells a parable. And you've probably heard it before. It's a simple story about a man who owed a great sum of money. And the king calls him into his, his court and says, Hey, I need you to pay me back. Your debt has come due. And it says that the man owed 10,000 talents, and a talent was 20, uh, was 20 years' wages. If we were to translate that into today's standards, based on the average salary of just this city, that would be roughly $7 billion. No one in this room, in this city, this country, this state, 
And only a handful of people in this world could dream of coming up with enough capital to pay off that debt. That fat contract that Patrick Mahomes signed in the offseason, if you asked him for some help paying off this debt, if he gave you every penny he has or is coming to him, he'd pay roughly 7% of it. When the king said it was time to settle the debt, the servant couldn't pay, and he ordered that the man and his wife and his children and all of his estate be sold to satisfy some portion of the debt. And the man falls to his knees and he pleads for mercy. He asked for the king to forgive him, to give him patience. And the king graciously forgave his debt. The man went out on his walk home, and he saw another man who owed him money. It's roughly $10,000. We're talking about a fraction of a single percent of what this first servant owed the king. And the text says he grabs him by the throat and demands that he pay him back. And this, this other servant, he does the same thing that the first servant does. He drops to his knees. He pleads for mercy. He asks for some patience for some more time, but nothing was granted. And Jesus ends this parable with a stern warning about how grace has to get all the way through us. That this first servant who did not extend the grace he had already received was thrown into prison for the rest of his life. Friends, the prison is our pride. We build it ourselves. The grace has really only gotten to us when it has gone all the way through us and when we hold debt over the heads of others and do not extend the same grace given to us, we really haven't allowed it to do its work in our hearts. William Arthur Ward writes this, We are most like beasts when we kill. We are most like men when we judge, but we are most like God when we forgive. See, grace demands that it be duplicated. We're no longer slaves to sin. The, the debt has been released. We are slaves to righteousness, invited into the activity of setting the world right again by extending God's grace. No matter what the debt is, yours and mine is greater still. Author Anne Lamont writes this, that a lack of forgiveness is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. Friends, grace should become a way of life for the people of God. And when we do not let grace work its way all the way through us, we're still enslaved to the sin Jesus died to save us from. So, grace has really only gotten to you when it is going through you. Let's pray. Father, it is only because of your grace that we have the ability to, in confidence, stand before you today. God, none of us has a track record that, that warrants your favor. None of us have done enough or earned enough. We could never serve enough. We could never give enough. God, it is, it is only your grace. I, I pray this morning we would not live in a prison of our own pride, believing that somehow we've done more than other people and therefore we've earned our right standing with you, but God, that we would be freed up from that line of thinking. That we would be receivers of grace and extenders of grace. God, help us to love and serve the world in the same way that you've loved and served us through Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.